Hey guys, welcome back to Break the Gate Podcast. Today we have an Evan Bailey. He is the vice president. Um, he also is the director of marketing for uh, Disco Donnie Presents. Uh, they do Sunset, Freaky Deaky, Extensions on Paradise Blues, and um, also recently So What Festival uh, with Third String. Um, and Mike Seamer's a great guy. I'm glad that you guys were able to develop a partnership uh, with that. Um, thanks so much for coming on into the podcast and talking about your industry a little bit. No problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, we kind of get into this with every person that we bring on. Uh, can you go into your journey in the entertainment industry and how it evolved into, uh, Disco Donnie? Sure. Yeah. I'll try to keep it to like the two minute version. Um, you know, I've always loved music pretty much as long as I can remember and kind of grew up in a house where music and vinyl were playing and my parents were excited about it. Um, and I think probably around the time I was 12 or 13, um, it was kind of the beginning of the grunge era, you know, so it smells Mm. like teen spirit kind of, sure. I think it knocked Michael Jackson out of the charts for the last time and, (laughs) you know, the world was changing. So I was very much caught up in that. Um, picked up a guitar, started playing guitar, um, kind of kept up with that through high school, you know, had friends who played other instruments and, um, you know, we'd get together little jam sessions and eventually moved into a house together. Um, you know, I, I graduated early specifically so I could move into a house with musicians and just play music and listen mm-hmm. to music. And, you know, that's all I sort of cared about. And strangely enough, I had a job at the time I was just telling my wife this story this morning because we were actually in that town, but um, I had a job at an amusement park not far from here. It's maybe 45 minutes. Um, the park's no longer open, but one of the interesting things about that job was I was paid at the end of the summer uh, sort of a commission based on I was a gamer. So I was, sure. uh, this is kind of a strange angle, but I swear it's going to. Yeah. Um, so I was paid <laughs> at the end of the summer in one lump sum. And um, I met some people there who were going to early uh, raves, essentially, at that time. I was essentially the Cleveland market. Um, And they got me kind of excited about the music and took me to a couple parties and, you know, a couple things clicked. And um, that summer, I had planned to buy a guitar, Paul Reed Mm -hmm. Smith. You know, I'd saved up all my all my money to do just that. And I remember very clearly when I went to the store to buy that Paul Reed Smith, something in me kind of clicked, ended up buying turntables, brought it back to this house where I was living. And the uh, people, you know, I was living with who were essentially bandmates were like, what, what is, what is this about? You know? Yeah. Um, and I remember I, I was really excited about it. Eventually they kind of came around and were interested in it too, but I just, you know, through a couple different shows and association with other people, I kind of got sucked into that. Um, and then I wanted to DJ, you know, and I, I was always the guy at the front row of a rave, you know, raves used to be a little, a little less distance between you and the DJ. And I would just sure. watch the decks all night. And since I had a little yeah. bit of musical background, I was like, oh, they're doing a rotation and on the turnaround, mm-hmm. they're dropping the next record and they're building harmonies and things. And I love the improvisational nature of it. It reminded me a lot of jazz, which is kind of where I had sort of migrated to toward the end of high school and early college. Um, so I immediately realized, oh, this is musical, you know, indeed. Yeah. And a lot of people didn't believe that, including a lot of musicians. 
Um, and some probably still don't. Um, and yeah. I, I understand why too, but, um, yeah. so I was very interested in DJing and I was experimenting with different things, you know, playing with bands, um, playing on my own, playing different styles. Um, and I, a friend of mine and I, we started a club night together where I lived at the time, Kent, Ohio, which is kind of a college town. And he was really into drum and bass. So he wanted to do a drum and bass night. And we started throwing a drum and bass night. And I was, I was sort of the oddball out because I played essentially house and techno and tribal sure. stuff or, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever the flavor stuff, was yeah. that I was interested in at yeah. the moment. And we kind of built it up and, you know, we were working with um, a lot of people from Philadelphia at the time, people like Diesel Boy and Sign and actually Kevin Gimble, who I still work with till this day. Mm, okay. And we used to put DJs on trains and stuff and yeah. um, bring <laughs> them to cool. Cleveland. And we kind of grew and grew. And eventually I sort of grew into the Cleveland market as a DJ. Sure. Um, met another promoter and we started doing bigger shows and I would help him with the shows, you know, people like, you know, Paul Van Dyke, for instance. And ironically, Paul Van Dyke, um, around that time, um, his agent uh, was Michelle Survey, who works for DDP now. So I got to know Michelle during that time, and we really liked her. And around that time, Donnie had just come out of the Rave Act, essentially nonsense, and Hurricane Katrina, and he had moved up to Ohio, and he was in Columbus, and I was in Cleveland. So essentially, you know, for a minute we were, I don't want to say competitors, but he kind of moved into the circle. Um, sure. And at that time things were a little more tribal or competitive or I don't know what the right. word is for it, but it was not yeah. a world of AEGs and Live Nations at that time. So I right. was, you know, like, oh, snap, you know, Donnie moved into Ohio. Like I knew exactly who he was because he had this sort of right. legendary status in the South through doing the Zulu parties and the like. And also um, he became sort of this lightning rod for the conversation related to the First Amendment and electronic music. And I knew he had mm -hmm. essentially fought, you know, Biden and all those people in the state Supreme Court and won yeah. uh, with the help of the ACLU. So I was like, you know, this guy was a force, right? So a big deal, um, yeah. And I, I've told the story before, but I'll never forget the time, first time I heard from him, it was... I think Mike, the guy I worked with, like forwarded an email and it was something like, we should work together, not apart. Yeah. And uh, I remember very clearly. And back then I was sort of, you know, I would, I was, uh, I'd gone to college for advertising design. So I was doing a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, and Donnie and I started working together on that. And it was just me and him. And uh, at the time, Donnie was, he had been doing this in the South, but kind of routing DJs almost like you would with rock bands, which was wasn't okay. You know, tour buses and the like. Sure. Um, and that wasn't done a lot back then. I mean, there was a couple tours like Moonshine Over America, etc. But he was developing this model, um, and I sort of helped him with that, where we would route you know stuff from Cleveland to Columbus to Indy to Nashville. You know, maybe back down okay. to Florida and Texas, and essentially that became sort of the blueprint for sort of the DDP business model. Uh, eventually festivals came, uh, sure. buyouts, you know, uh, you know, mergers with Insomniac, buyouts with uh, yeah. SFX and Lifestyle, et cetera. But that's kind of the short version of the story. Gotcha. Okay. That's a very detailed and good story though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, you never know how it's going to connect until you look backwards. 
Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. So you're you're in Florida now, though. You're you weren't always in Florida. No, our offices. We have we have a lot of people in offices in Florida. Um, Yeah. You know, like legal or I'm sorry, accounting's there. Michelle's there. A few other people. Okay. Most of DDP actually works uh, remotely. Like Donnie's in Puerto Rico. I'm actually still in Cleveland and Shaker Heights, which is kind of the east side of Cleveland. We have people in St. Louis and Texas and. Yeah. We were kind of uniquely positioned when that pandemic came around. We're like, oh, we know how to do this, you know. Yeah, we'll part of our strength remote. and part of yeah. the model. That's really cool. It's good that you're able to uh, adapt that yeah. that easily too. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of people weren't able to. Yeah. So, um, so as the vice president, um, marketing director, you know, I know those are kind of two different realms, you know, depending on what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, could you go into some of the primary responsibilities uh, sure. and what you do? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my background was in, you know, I, both my undergrad and graduate degrees were in things like advertising and design and journalism. So it's always been an interest of mine, you know, that combination of you were speaking to this, you know, before we started, you know, just combining things you love, right? Music, art, yeah. film. It's always been something that interested me. Um, so I kind of transferred that, I think, into the company. Um, and so in short, I sort of look after things in the marketing workflow. You know, anytime, you know, from sort of concept to, you know, when people buy the ticket or after the event, et cetera, it's kind of that marketing umbrella. So. Yeah. I sort of, you know, we have great teams. We have an excellent marketing team, for instance, um, sort of marketing and strategy. Um, so I'm I hesitant to even call myself the marketing director at this point. You know, it's it's like sort yeah. of a collaborative thing. Uh, we have great video teams, um, great PR teams. So I try to sort of be the glue that kind of holds that together. Um, okay. um, you know, often I think because of my background, you know, I'll get roped into things like the communications with the city or if we have yep. i don't know events are funny right like there's quote unquote yeah. crises like weather or something so often i kind of oversee that particular piece um okay so yeah i mean it's 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 a variety of things you know i help create festival brands i do most of our club um art workflows you know we all have our own little things okay. um yeah, I do all like kind of oversee the brand partnerships um, that we create at festivals, which is a big task in itself. Um, yeah. But even communications related stuff like, you know, rideshare programs, uh, philanthropy, things mm-hmm. of that nature. So while I'm very involved with like day to day stuff, I often try to look at, um, I guess, you know, bigger picture stuff, you know, whether it be, you know, community outreach we're doing or programs we're developing, um, things of that nature, too. Sure. We're a small team, so, so you're, a lot of us kind of wear a lot of multiple lot of hats. hats. Yeah, absolutely. And collaborate. Yeah. Sure. And it's the best way to uh, kind of provide everybody's strengths. You know, it's not mm-hmm. like a very corporate structure where like your job is this, you stay in that lane. You know, this is more of a like if you've got a, an asset, you've got a strength, yeah. by all means, let's use it and let's figure out how we can incorporate it with everything else. You know? Yeah, we often actually sort of joke about getting rid of job titles because yeah you know it's 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 we're small and collaborative um people have their experiences and sort of knowledge bases but so often you know it's like 
we'll get kind of we'll help each other in a variety of things so sure yeah, yeah absolutely uh, could you go into a little bit more about Disco Donne Presents and sure. uh, the significance of it? I know it's been around for, for quite a while. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, Donny had been doing stuff in the South prior, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, so Disco started in uh, 1992, or wait, 93, rather. So um, next year we'll actually celebrate our 30th year of business. Um, okay. So it's been around a while. You know, initially I wasn't part of what Donnie was creating in New Orleans, but that's where he sort of mm -hmm. got his start. Um, and there's tons of great articles and interviews and stuff out there about that if anybody's interested. But a lot of really colorful stories. I mean, New Orleans, if you've been, is kind of a colorful place by default. And that was yeah. part of sort of Donnie's, I don't know, uh, artistic style. I guess when it comes to sure. creating events, like he would pull performers off the street and he had this venue that he primarily worked at called the State Palace Theater. It's kind of the stuff of legends now. There's actually an excellent uh, documentary about it called Rise, the story okay. of uh, the rave outlaw Disco Donnie. And it's, I've watched it recently. <laughs> it's aging well. The music's good, the footage, yeah. but it kind of captures what I'm talking about. Um, you know, Donnie's always, he's a typical, you know, great promoter. He's always thinking bigger and better and, you know, how to make things, you know, advance. So, you know, sure. as he continued with his events, you know, people started to notice, um, you know, in the, in the 90s, if you were around in the dance scene, there was, we weren't, we were sort of, um, a lot of people were worried about dance music, you know, it was kind of sure. like yeah. a lot of genres when it first comes out whether it be jazz or the sort of the 60s or, you know, disco or whatever, there's often, you know, a part of culture that doesn't like that, that there's an underlying yeah. culture. Um, yep. And eventually it kind of comes to the mainstream and it's okay. But the government was very interested, not in a good way about the, you know, the rave movement essentially. And I, I mm -hmm. recall being in clubs on the East Coast like Buzz in dc and seeing police helicopters above us and you know just watching what wow. we're doing you know and um a lot of i you know performed numerous parties that got shut down by the police and yeah. some of it was probably permits and the like but i think a lot of it was just you know just sort of the climate so donnie sure. um i won't go too far into the story because it's complicated but he was essentially um you know they were using and I hate to get political because I actually, yeah, I, you know, I actually want better presidential can candidates on both sides, in my opinion. But sure, um, absolutely, and it's it's an open conversation. Yeah. Uh, no yeah. judgment. You could whatever you want to talk about. We're here for it. Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, you know, Biden was a senator at that time and basically yeah. drafted legislation called the Rave Act, reducing America's vulnerability to ecstasy. And what that act did okay. is, if you know a little bit about Biden's history, he was um you know it's probably some of the, like the criticism of his record deals with how he dealt with crime whether it be in african-american communities etc and this was part of that um mm -hmm. and essentially what this what this was uh legislation was doing was if you were a rave promoter you were based you were the government had the ability to charge you with what they called the crack house statute which basically meant you were not you were you were creating a place where people could do illegal things. So not only were you sort of essentially guilty of their actions, but also a higher charge of creating this space. 
So Interesting. They tried, yeah, they tried to test this out on Donnie. And there's there's stuff out there about this. And you know, I'm probably yeah. misquoting some of this stuff. In fact, often when I work with Donnie on press related to this, he's like, no, that's not right. You know, this yeah. is the story. So <laughs> yeah. take it with a grain of salt. But there is a lot of, of stuff out there. You know, so much of this went up to cover of Time magazine. You know, this was a big yeah. deal. So um, you know, when they so Donnie was the first person, I guess, charged with it. Um, and they sort of shut down the State Palace Theater for a, a time. Um, and during this, you know, people like me that were, you know, doing events in Cleveland and stuff, we were keeping a really close eye on this because it was like, if this guy goes down, like this whole industry goes down. Yeah. And eventually the case sort of fell apart um, because it was stupid. But in short, um, and, you know, I'll let listeners kind of look it up themselves and make their own decisions but it didn't hold water i'll put it to you that way um sure so when you know donnie came to ohio and i kind of already told the story he was sort of growing club markets around the u.s and um i think around 20 2011 or 2012 um to actually back up um late 2008-ish we ended up merging with insomniac um, so we were, okay. sort of, we, we became Insomniac East and they were sort of Insomniac mm-hmm. West. And what we were doing is developing EDCs around the country. Like there was Puerto Rico, Denver, Dallas, you know, a lot of the markets where we still are active. Um, we did that for a few years. Um, a lot of big entities were coming in on electronic as it was getting popular around 2010. Sure. Um, uh, you know, so these are long stories I'm condensing, but yeah. we kind of knew, no, everybody okay. sort of knew like Live Nation and AG were coming for this genre because there was money in it. Right. So we ended up selling to SFX, um, or Insomniac mm-hmm. kind of broke in half. We went with SFX, sure. Chris Ball, and then went with uh, Live Nation. SFX was part of this big roll up and, um, you know, some companies like Beatport, Tomorrowland, Tomorrow World, I should say. Yeah. Um, Electric Zoo, Life in Color, you name it. Um, yep. All these companies were rolled up. And it was actually really interesting. I mean, it, it sort of it was a famous flop. You know, it was a stock play. But um, it was actually really interesting because I learned so much from these other companies, especially abroad, that have been doing festivals for so long. Um, brand, A lot of what I know about brand partnership, I learned during that time. Um, for instance, I had a, a mentor, Teresa Velasquez, who was actually killed in that uh, Miami condo collapse a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Was, oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, it, it's tragic, of course. Um, yeah. But she was sort of this Live Nation executive eventually, but she taught me so much about brand partnership. I mean, give her a nod. But it was like during that time that we learned so much, you know, a lot of us, you know, just about accounting and lawyers, et cetera. So it was a good process. Yeah. A couple more buyouts. Um, or I should say one more buyout. And then in 2020, we bought the company back and became independent, which was, which has been great since then. Actually, yeah. I think Donnie's probably <laughs> one of the only people that ever sells his company and they buy it back, but yeah, <laughs> uh, it's been fun. We've, you know, created some new brands, um, new verticals like travel doing some, in my opinion, interesting new stuff, you know, as you pointed out, working with so what and Mike Zemer on rock shows uh, we're doing an eclipse mm-hmm. festival in spring of 24 so it's kind of just taken the gloves off and made us really nimble um but we still have those lessons from you know working with those other companies so 
my opinion, it's been a pretty cool journey, but that's yeah, the, those absolutely. are the cliff notes of DDP. I guess. Yeah. I feel like of all um, independent talent buying companies, uh, you guys were the most unique because the experience that you guys have, you know, the different involvements of different companies. And then, you know, obviously you said being able to buy yourself back out, you know, of selling it, you know, there's not a lot of companies, especially independent ones that, you know, have been able to do stuff like that and get all this experience, you know, there, you know, and then for it being relatively young company, you know, it's, it's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I sometimes the music industry is it's like we sometimes joke, and I've heard other people joke this, but it's like dog years. You know, it's there's yeah, it's like ten years ago feels so long ago in the music. Right, industry. right. Yeah, absolutely. So, in your experience, uh, we're, we're so we're gonna start going into more of like the marketing specific sure. um, um, questions now. Um, but so in your experience, what are some of the key factors that help with the success of marketing and promoting events and festivals? Um, I think, you know, staying fan sort of centric, um, you know, a lot of people talk about sort of the consumer experience in a lot of industries, but I think it's sort of first and foremost, it's always something that's really interested me. And I've, I've noticed, you know, and something I picked up working with Donnie and Pasquale, et cetera, is like just this obsession with sort of the consumer mindset. Um, so I think that's a really good way to sort of ground yourself. And with that, you know, we're, we're on a podcast talking about entering the music biz. Mm-hmm. I think people should not be afraid to work a variety of positions at events um, that nothing should ever feel below you. I mean, certainly you can be taken advantage of, but still like it, you can learn a lot by working the front gate, selling water, helping people in the parking lot. I mean, to understand all those little pieces is kind of what, in my opinion, sort of makes you experienced or a master. Sure. Um, in fact, we just, we started a program called Disco U for people who are kind of interested in entering the music biz. And one of the things we do is we take them around to each department Oh, that's so cool. they understand how it clicks together, but also yep. maybe they become really passionate about, you know, the ADA experience or yeah. food and beverage. You just don't know. And I was actually talking with somebody, Amanda on our marketing team about this. And she's like, wouldn't have that have been great when we started as employees? And I said, well, my, mm-hmm. my story is a little different, but yes, yeah. I, I totally agree. So that's what, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I think that's super important. Um, I think with, with music marketing, you have to, it's a really weird balance of like staying up to date um, with things like social media, for instance. I know that's sort of a no brainer, but it's also a balance of knowing kind of what worked and sort Mm. of not breaking it the next time you do it because you find yourself in this annual cycle. So we take a lot of notes um, and something we try to get better and better at what sold tickets this day and that day, et cetera. So I think good record keeping can really inform your process. Um, and it's, and, and create meaningful experimentation, you know, for example, a new thing like TikTok enters the last couple of years, you know, there's stuff you should still be doing. And then maybe that's adding on. You're not necessarily moving all your chips to that pile. So yeah. I think those are a couple things, you know, I try to, try to keep in mind and, and just just um being able to want to explore things 
you know, people will get a little bit set. You know, we get so many vendor inquiries and a lot of times I try to meet with those people just to see if they have something fresh or interesting. Um, sure. Just to give us sort of an edge. Um, so, yeah. you know, develop a culture of experimentation and openness um, and also being open to being wrong. You know, yeah. Yeah. a lot of people like to cover their tracks or they just can't check the ego or whatever, but it's right. okay to be wrong. It's how you learn, you know, and it's yeah. like, um, so I think that's part of it too. And I, I know those are all sort of psychological things I'm talking about, but I yeah. think they make a good foundation for kind of the tactical or strategic stuff that organizations engage in. Yeah. And to kind of build on that, uh, it's okay to be wrong thing. It's also okay to be right in a sense to where you don't necessarily have to make an example out of it either. You know, um, I think there's always, there's always a battle of, you know, Oh, I said this in the team meeting and nobody listened. And then now they're like realizing that I should have, they should have listened to me versus there's a battle of, you know, I said this and to the front of the team and they went with it and that was wrong. You know, so there's like two different sides of that and finding the equal middle or the middle ground between the two is where you're going to get the best uh, character development, you know, and as far as yeah. working with the team. It's actually really interesting. I mean, you know, leadership is probably a whole whole podcast in itself, but sure. You know, I, I find myself working with a lot of um, essentially Gen Z uh, employees and, um, you know, I've watched the working styles change over the years, you know, um, for example, there's much more coaching. And one thing I've just sort of learned over the years is that I think if you can make people's sort of objectives clear for success, you know, th they'll not only feel good about it and understand what to do, but also you have a metric to kind of talk about, you know, how to improve performance essentially in a meaningful way, you know, one that doesn't feel personal, for instance. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So how has the marketing landscape for festivals and events changed over the years? I know you went into this a little yeah. bit with the TikTok and, and Instagram yeah. part of it. Um, but with that, you know, obviously yeah. there was a big uprise of change. You know, how was, yeah. you know, how has that worked out for you? And what are the, some of the things yeah. you've done to work with it? It kind of depends how far I go back. I mean, I, but I'll do it for the the story i mean we used to print a lot of dead trees print on a lot of dead yeah. trees a lot of flyers yeah. a lot of flyers we still actually do some you know it's the roi on them's not bad and a couple spots sure. that can be meaningful but um you know while there were always sort of forums and you know email came around relatively early um you know social media has changed a lot in the last i don't know five years or so for us like for example we've definitely gotten much more into sms marketing um, okay. you know, obviously things like TikTok and Instagram and maybe a little less Facebook, less printed publications, um, fewer, fewer radio ads, unless the artist made sense, et cetera. Sure. But the one thing I would say is that, you know, as the, the market changes, it's not totally about the mediums per se. It's more like the strategy as it relates okay. to the culture. So a good example I'll give you is. SMS has been around for a while. I mean, I used to text people on my phone, hey, you come to the club night, you know, back in the 90s, yeah. basically. Yeah. Obviously, the tools have gotten better, but 
what one of the things that's different is you know people are doing a lot of pre-registration now with ticketing mm, okay, um, yeah. and this basically does a couple things you know as you it, you can gauge interest in something um you can sort of quantify it but it also informs not only the sms process but also some of the social targeting you do so you know it's an example of how these yes these are older technologies that it's not like we we invented this but how we're approaching it sort of changes yeah. Um, sure. I would say that's one of the big things, you know, over the last couple of years, SMS has become more important, but especially through the lens of um, kind of contesting and pre-registration so that you can understand your data better, um, you know, related to the potential customer base. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so do you guys use TikTok at all? I mean, I know you oh, said yeah. you, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. How, how has that worked for you guys sure. uh, in terms of convergence? Uh, is it, is it helped ticket sales or are you, is your ROA more in the uh, SMS, you know, that kind of thing? Um, I mean, TikTok, it's a funny thing. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to think where to get started with this. So obviously, <laughs> you know, ads on platforms like Facebook have become less effective uh, especially yeah. when you're looking at maybe an aspirational audience of those, you know, 18 to 21, you know, you're trying yeah. to get new inroads. Um, so of course, yes, we've gone to TikTok. Now TikTok presents its own challenges. Um, sure. For instance, it takes a lot of research. Um, so we, there's a few, two or three people, depending on what project we're talking about, that tend to research these things. So what are the trending sounds? What are the trending sort of videos? Etc. So you're often kind of remixing what's happening with pop culture, so it has okay. that traction. You know, I don't know how sure. much you're on TikTok, but like, you know, I don't barely. Know. My it, girlfriend's it, more on it than I am. Got it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm not. You know, admittedly, you know, this is sort yeah. of a younger person's game, so there's a lot of research sure. that goes into it. Um, we probably need to do more. We do run ads. Um, you know, I think the conversion it hasn't. It certainly can convert. Um, I think yeah. it's getting better, but that was initially a challenge for us was just the conversion rates and measurement and the like. Um, yeah. Another thing is certain artists kind of come from that world and do really well. And, you know, they, they sure. themselves have a presence there. Um, for example, a lot of legacy acts might not, you know, somebody my age might not really uh, do a ton on there, right? So therefore, right. they wouldn't be necessarily the best match. But artists like Disco Lines, for instance, that kind of became known on that platform, that's a, probably a no-brainer that you would run ads sure. for those sort of shows. So yeah. that, that's some of the nuances we often think about. But I, I, I see it all the time, you know, and when things are working, we tend to double down, you know. So if I see these conversations all the time, like, do we have TikTok running? Yeah. How's it doing? Pretty good. Okay, let's double it. You know, yeah. so that's those are sort of things you see happen. Absolutely. I think that's standard for any industry, um, especially the music industry. Um, mm -hmm. We have, you know, with, um, you know, Google and Yahoo search and all that stuff, we have SEO optimizations, you know, mm -hmm. different things that we could do all the back end. We can see all the metrics, you know, all the analytics, you know you know, how old this person is, where their uh, IP is located and stuff right. like that, that those tools uh, worked great for so long. 
Well, now we've got things like, you know, TikTok and Instagram, Facebook, and they don't always work well with each other in terms of analytics. You know, you, it's hard to get that conversion over. You know, I was just having this conversation with um, a previous podcast um, guest uh, where we were talking about the conversion of getting people who are watching an artist on TikTok over to Spotify and getting Spotify numbers up. You know, there's still a weird space between the two where, for lack of better wording, people are too ADHD to where they don't really go above and beyond and go to the platform of Spotify and be like, okay, I remember this from TikTok. I'm going to go over and listen to the song now on Spotify. You know, so it's you have it's really hard to grasp that that information and that following over to other things like ticket buys and that type of type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a lot of uh, involved with it. A lot of questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, people are still trying to get it, trying to figure it out, you know. Um it's just one of those things, you know. Um, I th- think I lost you on mic. Oh, there we go. Okay. Yeah. It cut out for a second. No, it's fine. I had it muted for a second. There was oh, okay. <laughs> Um, so which channels, uh, I, I guess, you know, not to kind of beat the horse a little bit, but which channels, uh, have been working best for you guys? Um, I would say SMS is, yeah. as I mentioned, kind of important. Um, I mean, there's still very healthy budgets on, you know, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I would say we probably increased our spends on things like google ads especially search okay um, yep. and i don't know emails you know remains part of it we tend to be a little more selective about when we use email it's not just blast after blast after blast sure. um, it's often t- it's kind of related to like what we're doing with sms for instance you know it might be like a festival goes on sale you get a text and you know hey tickets are on sale and then hey guess what the email's there and maybe it has yeah a little bit more information or something along those lines okay um so yeah i mean i don't know my gut tells me to tell the story of sms you know it just seems like it's become uh, a pretty important part of what we do over the last couple of yeah. years post pandemic i would say absolutely yeah, I agree. And I, I feel like a lot more people are starting to catch on to that. I've seen, yeah. uh, you know, subscriptions are an easy thing to do, you know. Um, so to go into specifics such as like subgenres, how do you kind of market your 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 approach to subgenres of the events you're promoting? And, you know, it, how do you adapt your strategies to different genres to know what works for one thing may not work for for another thing? Um, yeah, I mean, it's true, you know, like artists, like artists are a pretty easy example, you know, some artists might be more native to TikTok, or, you know, if we're doing an older artist, we might look at platforms like Facebook, it kind of depends on where we think the eyeballs are. Um, But, you know, when it comes to like, like, for instance, we're doing this rock festival festival in a couple weeks. So what? Yep. Um, And that's definitely outside GDP's sort of you know, scope comfort zone. So it's a lot of conversations with our, you know, partner, Mike, in that case, yeah. um, he's always telling us, you know, I, I, this might work for, you know, dance music, but it probably won't work for us. Um, right. so there's a little bit of that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Mike's great at uh, helping people kind of uh, see the potential of something too, you know, and he's always been known for that. You know, um, I had also Johnny Grimes on here, you know, Furnace Fest, and he works with Mike pretty regularly. And it's one of the best things that he's done, as he says. <laughs> um, could you... So I know we talked about SMS a little bit, but I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more about the marketing behind it because I feel like, you know, I've actually read some of the stuff that you, uh, has been put out about your conversations with SMS. Um, and I think SMS is kind of something that is pretty impactful. Uh, could you go into a little bit more of what the marketing behind that looks like? How do you capture the, the data? You know, how do you get the phone numbers, that kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, emails are certainly, or I'm sorry, phone numbers are typically collected during, you know, ticketing. So that's one source, but probably the primary source and the way we're using it from a strategic perspective is um, things like landing pages that, you know, for instance, uh, we might announce a festival and there's very little information. We might have a widget on the page that says, be the first to find out when the lineup drops or maybe it's okay. contested or uh, be sure. the first to know when tickets come on sale, those sorts of things. And sometimes those are kind of promoted via ads too. Yeah. So we have, you know, different sources where we're kind of feeding those data into that widget and that bucket, you know, those are essentially qualified leads, right? They entered sure. a contest, they signed up on the page, whatever, but showed kind of an interest in the product or, you know, a timeline moment. So yeah. those, you know, that th those often kind of, you know, but not only do they inform kind of, you know, how we might do ad targeting, you know, lookalikes and the like, but um, we, we deliver uh, information to those people on a schedule um, kind of based on their interest. So, you know, while it's sort of simple, it's, it, it we, we're not just blindly putting things on sale and hoping it works out. Sure. We're, we're looking for these qualified leads and sort of engaging them throughout the process and like i said we also you know i have so many conversations on my phone it's like how many registrations today we're looking at yeah. it day by day <laughs> okay um, so there's a quantification piece to it um, okay you know to help us understand you know how it's how it's going essentially or what we think sure. will happen right um, but a lot of other promoters are doing this too you know this is not sort of native to us it's it's just it's just become a, a pretty uh, important part of you know how we put tickets on sale for major festivals yeah absolutely um so you also have this um ambassador program too which i've noticed i mean you you know that kind of helps a little bit uh how does that how has that contributed to the marketing efforts of disco donnie has that helped quite a bit yeah it's definitely an important part of what we do you know i talked a little bit about flyers and yeah, in fact, we still do some. I mean, I think Donnie and me and a lot of us, you know, we were promoters first. So the kind of boots on the ground mentality is important to us. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, we like hard ticket sellers out there, you know, people kind of sure. selling hard tickets. Um, but we also recognize that there's a world of people out there who enjoy socially based rewards. You know, they want to earn things um, maybe more slowly or, you know, just, you know, they're more interested in the VIP experience. Um, so we have two programs, you know, sort of a hard ticket program and then also kind of like a social, socially based 
uh, ambassador program where people can earn access to, you know, different and, you know, expedited entry and things like that. Yeah. So we actually run two and they kind of consider those two mindsets, you know, people who are more money driven and more socially driven. Okay. Um, our hard ticket program, you know, a lot of these sellers can sell a lot of tickets. So it's yeah. a smaller group, but their revenue is really good. Whereas the socially based ambassadors, we t- tend to have more of them, thousands of them. They sell mm-hmm. fewer tickets, but it's more like a torrent of tickets. You know, oh, so I see. Okay. The, the two kind of complement each other. Um, sure. Not only from the audience perspective, but just kind of holistically and what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you guys leverage events to kind of promote the next? Is there, is there different strategies you guys use to kind of maintain, you know, uh, attendance and maintain, um, you know, making sure there's always a back end of something is, you know, how do you guys kind of more or less move things along with different, um, different events? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely partially a geographic consideration. Um, so what I mean by that is that, we have an event, a festival in Dallas and we have another festival in Dallas a few months later, you know, we'll use that festival to help the next one. So, you know, at the end of a festival, fans might receive an email with things like t- um, photos and lost and found information and, you know, perhaps a deal on the next festival. Yeah. It's on sale. Um, obviously the data becomes very important. Um, but, you know, more broadly speaking, you know, festivals, we it's very cyclical and i think maybe not pe- maybe not always do people outside the industry realize that pretty much after we finish one event we're kind of starting to plan the next one and while the sure. cadence is slower it's very much a cyclical process um so you know while there's these tools i talked about like data collection we're, we're certainly looking from a geographic perspective of oh those people came last year let's tell them about this year yeah. Um, so that's definitely the way we segment our email very much keeps that in mind. Um, kind of, I, I was asking our email person the other day, how many segments do we have? Cause I was thinking about something and she, she was like, I don't know, 400, 500, you know, a lot of segments. Yeah. Um, you know, you know even in a place like Texas, for instance. Yeah. So we do worry about, you know, we don't want to annoy people. We want to give them information about shows that they can use right so we look at you know um you know while we follow up with people and the like we want it to be you know potentially by genre artist or by festival or at least by geography right so we think about that a lot um in, in the email campaigns and kind of what you're talking about you know helping the last event promote the next one yep absolutely so with COVID, um, the industry as a whole has kind of seen a rise in costs. Um, you know, touring, you know, it, it's more expensive to tour. It's more expensive to bring bands out to venues. You know, uh, ticket prices have gotten higher. Um, how have you guys kind of dealt with that? You know, uh, it's, I mean, you guys have such a big presence um, on the electronic scene. I mean, it, it, Sure. I mean, we talked about this a little bit with working remote, but on the cost side of running things, how has that worked for you guys? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I mean, you know, disco kind of has a few different buckets, but two major ones are club shows Mm -hmm. and festivals. And they certainly 
work together. Um, you know, we probably pre-pandemic were doing kind of like thousands of club shows a year. I think we're being a little more choosy about those now. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of people are, it's not just us, you know, it's even people like Live Nation, um, I would guess. Um, so, you know, there's been a little bit, a little bit more uh, selectivity, I guess, with club okay. shows, but also more experimentation with festivals. Um, and some of it deals with locations. You know, I think one of the things that came out of the pandemic is people, uh, I don't know, became more interested in the locale of events and like what the experience was like to some degree. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people were more interested in, I don't know, being in a really interesting beach location or something like that, rather than like, you know, pack nightclub again, again, again. So, you know, I think yeah. travel events kind of became more important after the pandemic sure. um, with inter interesting areas. Um, I think at least for our company, you know, we were trying to kind of experiment a little bit more with um, styles, you know, whether it be rock or, you know, doing an event around the eclipse that's more, a little bit more science, you know, focused, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, I think those are some of the changes I've seen post pandemic that ultimately are about uh, efficiencies that ultimately transfer to hopefully competitive ticket prices. Okay. Um, there are certainly things you can do in budgets to trim, but usually budgets kind of breathe yeah. um, like a festival. Um, so, you know, if you're doing something people like and people, I think, will reach into their pocket for, you know, sort of unique events, you know, great talent, great locations, great experiences. Mm -hmm. I think um, the financials are sort of an output of that, you know, the success. Um, but I do think people are choosier post pandemic with how they spend their dollars. I mean, we're sort of in a, you know, undeniably some sort of inflationary period. Uh, sure. So I do think people are being a little choosier and therefore I think promoters are being more selective with their offerings and, and yeah. sort of customizing them to be essentially more interesting from an experience yeah. standpoint. Okay. So to kind of segue over to uh, partnerships, because uh, I know that's something that you deal with quite a bit, and I guess this is a kind of good uh, way to segue with COVID. Have you noticed there is a trend in uh, partnerships being more picky with working with uh, you know events and festivals, or do you think it's kind of more or less the same? Yeah, so partnerships, you know, changed uh, for sure yeah. pre and post pandemic. One of the things I noticed a lot is, you know, we actually threw the first festival in the world after the pandemic, as far as I know, yeah. in Dallas, Texas. You know, we were like, in, you know, a month after Governor Abbott opened up the the state, a hundred percent, we produced an event. And one of the things I noticed first is that and that's a whole story in itself, but Sure. One of the things I noticed first is that brands weren't activating, meaning they were interested in the fact you're doing a festival, but they had internal mandates. Oh, you can't be out in the road and, you know, these sorts mm -hmm. of things. So initially it was very sticky. Um, but when it came back, I think it's the best it's ever been. And I credit a lot of that to, you know, brands like, I don't know, let's say Coca-Cola, for instance, if you're sure. worried about I don't know, your portfolio of products and Gen Z adoption, for instance, you're not necessarily going to um, 
run a bunch of newspaper ads, right? Yeah. Those days are gone. So to get in front of young people, they're looking for you know these verticals like activation and experiential advertising, so that young people can you know get the can in the hand, kick the tires, put on the you know health and beauty product, whatever, and it's sort of priceless to them. So, um, and a lot of interesting brands have kind of popped up in my opinion, like the whole ready to drink vertical. Um, mm. So these are brands like Beatbox, Monaco. I mean, even big brands like Jack and Coke have one together. Yeah. Uh, so I saw stuff like that become kind of more important. Um, and brands were seemingly doing things that were a little more scrappy, uh, meaning like they were, this was not sort of a push strategy per se, as it was like more of a pull strategy as it pertained to retail. What I mean by that is they were activating these ready to drink brands at festivals first, and then you saw them at gas stations later, not the other way around. So there were, I don't know, there's some interesting things I saw there. Um, but overall, it's felt pretty good from a brand uh, perspective, in my opinion. You know, I, I'll never understand why certain brands don't necessarily seem interested in music festivals. Like we don't tend, sure. we tend to see a ton of liquids. Um, we tend to, you know, whether it's energy drinks or alcohol. Yeah. But, you know, there's things like insurance or cars or, you know, consumer yeah. packaged goods, which we, we see less of. I, I don't know if it's the dance space or yeah. what, but they just, it doesn't seem to be part of their sort of current strategy. Yeah. Who knows? It may change. Yeah, that's true. Um, when one of the years that I worked with uh, Warp Tour, they had Kia as a sponsor. And they had actually brought in a car you know, on a rotating platform for each of the location or the dates that Warped Tour had, which would have been 30 or 40. So I, I couldn't imagine the cost behind that, you know, and I, I can't I can't picture there being a good ROI behind it. So I, I understand, but I don't also feel like you need to put a car at the festival to be able to get an ROI, you know what I mean? It, it could just be a matter of placements, you know, just kind of getting that subconscious of like, hey, I've recognized that brand, I recognize that car, I've seen it before when they're doing their car shopping, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing for other brands. There's that, you know, there's also like, you know, data's been a thing for a while, sure. obviously, but just like, you know, the ability to potentially offer an audience, I don't know, you know, it's like, you know, you know, pretend you're Volkswagen, you're coming out with this new bus, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you're, you're going to want to do, um, yeah, some dead shows and things like that. But, you know, to sort of get in front of young people, you're probably going to need some sort of data. Um, and, you know, I think festivals can be a great way to get that sort of young data or qualified leads, um, you know, to extend offers and the like. So, you know, it might not even be necessarily something at the event. It could be, okay, yeah, I saw that thing at the gates, but, oh, wow, here's an offer now for, you know, something related to the car, um, which yeah. I think could be very compelling, you know, for a brand. It's like, yeah, sure. you saw it there at the dead show, but now you're getting an offer for it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So uh, on the note of corporate sponsors, um, what are some of the key differences with working, you know, with a corporate sponsor on a brand partnership level versus working with, say, you know, a local sponsor? Yeah, I mean, corporate sponsors tend to 
have a set of really clearly identified objectives going into a brand partnership. They often have an agency representing them, whether okay. it's sort of activation based or not. So it's not uncommon that you're not necessarily talking that much to the brand. It might be more the agency. Sure. Um, whereas local partners typically are more interested in sales. So okay. they're not necessarily looking at for awareness or consideration or trial. They're kind of looking for that conversion, sure. uh, you know, those impressions or whatever it might be at the show. So I tend to see it kind of break a little bit more like that. Um, brands often want more detailed reporting after the fact, too, because they're kind of selling it up the chain. You know, here's here's what we fought for in the budget. Here's what we did. Here's how it okay. performed. So that's a pretty common expectation you see with bigger brands that you don't see as much with the other brands. Right. Um, I would say big brands, especially in the liquid space, tend to work with affiliates. So for its instance, if you're doing a deal with, you know, Heineken or Budweiser or something, chances are you're going to be working very closely with the dis- distributor in that market. Okay. Um, so that can be a sort of a key difference that you don't see as much with like local sponsors. And they might be leveraging infrastructure, you know, things like trucks to keep the product cold. ID bands is a branding moment, but also the functionality of, you know, having the 21 plus band, Um, they might do media spends in the market, you know, maybe billboards and the like, or there might actually be a retail program associated with it, like at gas stations, for instance, um, where you see point of sale sort of um, stuff that's, you know, branded with the festival and maybe it's a chance to win backstage or something like that. So Mm. those are some of the big, bigger differences. Um, Often big brands want bigger spaces. You know, they want a big presence, uh, you know, 40 by 40, 100 by 100, whereas local sponsors might want 10 by 20. So you tend to see that differentiation and therefore, you tend to see different pricing, you know, the, the bigger brands are spending more because they're eating up more, literally more real estate on the ground. So yeah, that's a few things I guess I tend to see. Okay. So how do you guys go about building something like a sponsor deck? Uh, do you make it more of a, I know what brands we're looking for, know what sponsors we want, so let's build the deck around that? Or is it more so, let's see how much we can provide, you know, as more of an a la carte versus a your tiered sponsor? Um, I'm not big on the tiers thing. And here's yeah. why. Um, I know a lot of people sell that way and have success selling that way. So if you do and yeah. it works for you, great. Great, right. What I find is, especially these big brands kind of come with their own agenda, as I just mentioned. So you're tier one, you're going to get this and this and this. They might have some tacit interest in that, but typically they have deal points they want. We want 40 by 40 space. We want to be on the menu. We want to be this price. We want this amount of social posts and we want some data after the fact or something sure. like that. Sorry, my kid's waking up from a nap. So it's okay. <laughs> uh, um, um, so yeah, so you know, those are some of the things they often come with. So if you have these pre-described buckets, like probably doesn't even work in the first place. Sure. Um, the second thing is decks. I think are really there to kind of wet interest. You know, and, and what I mean by that is like you explain what the event is. 
what they really want to know things like expected attendance. They want to know if you if you have historicals, what your typical historical demographic data is. Um, they may have questions on how that aligns. You know, what percentage of the crowd is twenty one plus, for instance. Mm, okay. Um, they might they do often appreciate you know interesting sort of branding opportunities. But I, we tend to get into those more during the conversation. Sure. Um, and a little less like upfront, like, here you go. Here's the interesting stuff. You know, we want right. to learn what they're trying to do first and how to leverage what we have, whether it be, you know, space or data or whatever, how to leverage that against that to solve their objectives. Yeah. Um, sometimes you kind of know, you know, for sure. I mean, but generally speaking, you know, we don't necessarily do those tiers. It's more about telling them about the event. Um, and sometimes, you know, you ask something about this. You know, we definitely do are looking for a certain category. Oh, we don't have, you know, vodkas up this year. At, you know, lights all night. Let's go find a vodka company. Yep. So we might talk to a few distributors, a few companies. Um, but often they're multi-year deals. Not usually more than two, but, you know, we, or, or, or across festivals. You know, we might have you know, Red Bull across festivals this year, you know, something along those lines. Sure. So in terms of talking to different types of sponsors, I mean, you mentioned Liquid is a pretty heavy one. I mean, those ones you typically go through a distributor and you get your partnerships that way. But what about other products where you, if you have a, a mentality of like, you want to get that particular sponsor or sponsor type, that product type, um, and as you said earlier, that so they typically go through a um, third party um, and they contract them out to do all of their negotiations. How do you get that communication? You know, if you're you just kind of a cold email, is it more or less yeah. in the industry? You know, um, I mean, there's some stuff that comes inbound. I mean, often yeah. you get really interesting stuff that comes inbound. Like, hey, I saw your event. I'm interested. Sure. I saw one of those just in the last couple of weeks that'll probably turn into something kind of big. Yeah. Generally speaking, we're using an agency to talk to other agencies. Mm, um, we're okay. not calling up Monster, Red Bull. And we have those relationships now, but sure. when it comes to like the new thing, um, it's generally an agency on our our agency of record talking to their agency of record. So this would be, okay. you know, there's often companies like MTKG out there that activate, you know, brands like Diageo's portfolio in theory, you know, I'm not sure it's like true, but, um, so there, there's often things like that going on. Okay. And is that something that is typically you budget for, or does, do they get their, do they get another percentage of what's taken in or how does that usually percentage based deals? It kind of protects everybody. Some people have like monthly retainers, their deals, um, you know, just to handle the filing that sometimes the responsibilities are divided differently. For instance, you could have an agency that does things soup to nuts agreement through the activation and reporting, or you could have an agency that just sort of gets the deals and a company like ours sort of executes against it, you know, and perhaps that would qualify you for like a lesser commission or to maybe get rid of the monthly retainer. Um, but they're often pretty much, you know, you start to see stuff like 20, 25%. Mm. Um, and sometimes there'll be deals where money's kept in escrow or, 
you know, the money has to be received or, you know, before it's paid out. That's sure. the nuances of it. But yeah. that, those are, they're usually sort of roughly percentage-based deals. Okay, cool. So I got, I got one more question and then we'll pretty much wrap it up here. Um, as far as the, we're going to go back to a little bit of the marketing stuff. Uh, as the industry evolves, where are some of the, some upcoming trends or changes you foresee? And we, I know we talked about uh, SMS, but is there anything else that you think, you know, would play a factor in event marketing and promotion? Yeah, I mean, I've sort of talked about this a little bit throughout the podcast, but I think, you know, if you're talking about music and you're talking about events that are supposed to attract sort of young people, and whether it's electronic or country or rock, you know, that's often the lifeblood of sort of the live space, you know, these young people who come to these events and those sorts of things. I think you have to fundamentally examine and appreciate, you know, who this audience is. Mm. And that could have a lot of different uh, ramifications. You know, it could be your brand partnerships, it could be the way you price things, the acts you book, et cetera. But um, I, do, I think young people, you know, get a, often get a bad rap um, you know, they're obsessed with their social media or this or that. Um, I think there are, Gen Z is an interesting generation in a variety of ways, you know, uh, just, you know, how they think about philanthropy and how they, the companies they support and how they purchase products through media, um, what, how they think about uh, the world and some of the issues you know, related to our world. So. I don't discount it at all. And I think there's magic in that. And I think mm -hmm. the more promoters kind of get in line with that and don't, you know, sure. it's not so much about TikTok and, oh, I'm behind schedule, but more just sort of gener genuinely interested in their audience and what sort of makes them tick. I think it's sort of platform agnostic, right? It's, it's more yeah. about the way things you talk about and the way you communicate with these people and what they value. And they're not dumb, you know, they want to see the people behind companies. They want to kick the tires, as I mentioned, and yeah. you know, they want to, they want authenticity more than ever. And I think that's why we've seen these platforms that while they're not necessarily authentic, they're, you know, it's, it's rougher video usually, right? It's not like yeah. corporate, corporate, you know, slick video. I think that appetite sped up um, and it's shorter, it's snackable. You know, we could call it attention deficit disorder, but the reality is, you know, the last 20 years we've been, you know, had bombarded with marketing messages and it's just kind of the way yeah. of the world that people, you know, want to sc scroll through stuff and decide what resonates with them. Yeah. So, you know, I guess that's sort of a winding answer, but I just, I, I think, um, I think there's a lot of promise with this gener this this you know gen z essentially generation and how we market to them is going to be a little different um, what yeah. the values are different absolutely all right evan well i appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking Thank um you. yeah absolutely we'll have to maybe get donnie on next time you know and you know yeah. some of his right. his stories I, I would love to hear some yeah. of those yeah <laughs> great stories. So, yeah absolutely so. way more exciting than mine yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. You too.